Good afternoon. It's Friday the 12th of November 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio, as usual, on a Friday, Patrick Henningsen from 21st Century Wire. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. Uh, well, we're going to lead off today with the uh, funeral for Dennis Hutchings, which uh, took place in Plymouth yesterday, and a huge turnout for that. It was, it was a very impressive, uh, the turnout. Uh, I've not seen anything like that uh, in the city uh, in, in years. So it was uh, it was quite a turnout, especially from the, uh, the veterans uh, and the military community. Yeah, indeed. So uh, they started off with a uh, a bike uh, parade, or certainly the cortege ran ran for 110 miles from Bristol to uh, as we'll see in a second in some of the mainstream coverage. Yeah, there uh, were hundreds. Bristol, there were hundreds of bikes yeah. uh, came from this. Now, the, one of the reasons that the bike rally was organised was because initially the Ministry of Defence had said that they would not provide. Uh, a, a military funeral for Dennis, uh, but they uh, did a U-turn on that uh, at, a, at the last minute. But nonetheless, the, the parade uh, continued. Um, and uh, they, as, as we say, a huge turnout for it. And uh, some speeches from, uh, well, Johnny Mercer MP was speaking at it and so on. So uh, Johnny Mercer has supported uh, Dennis uh, over the, the last number of years. Now, it was a passionate turnout, I might add. To yes, it, the the level of uh, emotion was very high uh, at this event, and as was the, the the passion of I think a lot of attendees there. They the, so strongly they felt about um, Dennis Hutchings as a uh, a comrade uh, in in military terms, but also about the issue. Yeah, about the issue, and the issue was that of course, as a, an eighty year old, uh, he was being uh, prosecuted in Northern Ireland for attempted murder. Uh, for an event which took place in the 1970s, um, and uh, many, many people questioning why that uh, why that prosecution progressed. Now, just to uh, make it clear, Dennis, in the mainstream press at least, well, let's just have a look at some of the mainstream uh, coverages of Plymouth Live. Dennis Hutchings funeral bikers join 110 mile convoy to honour veteran. Uh, the BBC Plymouth funeral for uh, troubles veteran Dennis Hutchings. He was much more than a troubles veteran. He was a veteran of many. Uh, areas around the world, but uh, in that paragraph that you just about to see on screen there, it says that he died having contracted COVID-19. Well, this isn't really the case, is it? Uh, because he was extremely unwell and many, many people were questioning why this prosecution was brought in the first place. He had stage four cancer. Uh, he was on kidney dialysis. He could only attend the court hearing against him uh, every other day because he was in hospital on the dialysis machine? Effectively uh, uh, on the edge of renal failure. So he was literally dying uh, during the uh, the legal proceedings. And so- and, and, and it was pinned on COVID at the end, which is so disingenuous. And I think that's just a classic example of uh, mainstream uh, corporate media misinformation and that gets disseminated widely. And I think it, I think it served as a distraction of sorts because when you stick the word COVID, it's extra loading, isn't it? Yes. On the story. Uh, yes. And so uh, if we look at Irish world here, PPS, this is a public prosecutor in Northern Ireland, defending the decision to bring Dennis Hutchings to trial. There is no defense, really. He was hounded to his death. Uh, the point here is, and I've said it before, if you're going to have the rule of law, the rule of law can only be there if it applies equally to everyone. So if you're going to prosecute one side of a conflict, you've got to prosecute the other side of the conflict. And in this case, uh, as part of the Good Friday Agreement, uh, Tony Blair signed or organized four letters of amnesty to be given to everybody on the IRA and INLA side. Uh, and uh, no such amnesty was given to veterans. 
So the law has to apply equally to everybody. Uh, it is not applying equally to everybody. And in this case, we understand from some of the people that we were speaking to yesterday uh, that there are around 400 such cases to be brought with respect to the Northern Ireland Troubles. And some people uh, are hearing, and we will say it's unconfirmed at this point, but we understand it is the case that, uh, that there's an effort to bring similar uh, prosecutions against people involved in Afghanistan. Uh, so, you know, this is not going to end soon. And the Ministry of Defence uh, is not standing up for its veterans once again. It's a really an extraordinary story if you think about it, Mike. And you know, with that many prosecutions, what you're talking about, another 400 yes. uh, cases. That to me, there there has to be political forces at play behind this, and it's just too big uh, of of an issue. And it, and it has the potential to, I think, undermine uh, the sort of pe general peace and stability that has been uh, more or less enjoyed in recent years uh, in in Northern Ireland. And this really has a the power to undermine that uh, potentially. It's just, it seems to me uh, superfluous, really, if you consider the arc of history uh, of this event. So it, 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 as a political uh, analyst, instinctively, I would also question, I would ask the question, uh, is the US somehow involved in this politically behind the scenes? Because this seems like a, some sort of it's almost like a score-settling exercise, but to are, what, are you, to what you, end? Are you suggesting uh, perhaps in order to maintain support from the Irish-American community among certain political... I'm, a, I'm asking the question because yes. this is so big that there has to be big political forces. So it, does it have to do with the border issue? Uh, does it, is, is it part of a quid pro quo with Brexit, reunification of Ireland, US, US support from the, uh, the Irish uh, lobby and how passionate they are on this issue as well? Certainly, these are the sort of things that um, a democratic administration uh, would also support uh, because especially Joe Biden, uh, uh, that type of uh, president as well, uh, would definitely be uh, sort of led along on uh, this sort of a thing. So we have to ask these questions because um, it, it doesn't make pragmatic sense. Right. So then the question is, who benefits and to what end? Yes. That's, those are the big questions. Okay, well, let's move on then to uh, COP26, which of course is coming to an end. Or is it, Patrick, because this is, uh, this is the big question, are they going to get a deal done or not? Well, they were supposed to be done today, Mike. Uh, in fact, just a couple of hours after this news program finishes, uh, they're supposed to be wrapping things up at COP26, but that might not actually be the case, Mike. That might not actually be the case. We'll get into details. So we're going to sort of... Um, you know, we, we've done all the reading and, and, and we've looked through their summaries. So we're going to sort of try to digest what this all means uh, to the average person out there, because literally it's mired with uh, bureaucratic jargon and all sorts of new green language. So we'll do our best to sort of demystify uh, COP 2026 20, for you this time around. So uh, we'll start here. And uh, this was a good summary by Politico, uh, the Morning Energy and Climate. So we have a problem. Uh, well, there is a U.S.-China truce on, on the climate agreement. That is potentially positive, according to the crowd in Glasgow. But then uh, we have problems with Saudi Arabia, India, and Russia that could throw one of the big whole objectives of this summit into turmoil. Let's just take a look just in summary here. So we're going to give you the green spin. That's the official line. And then we'll show you, we'll translate that for you in a minute. So Greenspin, U.S. climate truce okay, and China truce, a methane win, uh, says the good and the great at COP. The statement 
It lifts the mood. So really, this was all about lifting the mood towards the end of the conference because the mood was so bad <laughs> at the beginning. So literally, they're, they're willing to do anything to lift the mood. They're really happy about that. So implementation versus ambition. That'll be an interesting translation. And uh, here's another one. They haven't done enough. This is something you will hear constantly uh, from the activist uh, wing of this conference. And the Green and the EFAs, uh, this is the sort of European coalition here. They're issuing their demands. They're coming out really strong. So let's translate this for you. Right, uh, U.S. climate, uh, U.S.-China climate truce. That's basically U.S.-China power sharing. So these are the two biggest economies in the world. So what do you think about that? Well, my understanding is that Biden is really trying hard to get a uh, summit with Xi Jinping by the end of the year, if possible. So I, I would uh, say that's probably uh, hitting the nail on the head there. So if they can basically do their own deal between each other, yeah. and then they can also make everybody else abide uh, in the process. And that leaves them on the top as the sort of bipolar uh, world powers there. So very convenient. So methane win, that means uh, we agree to try to farm less. Yes, uh, that means people will starve. Well, in terms of livestock and things like that, that's the real target there is mainly uh, dairy and, uh, and livestock. So, but they'll try to do less. China will, U.S. will. Uh, uh, statement lifts the mood. Summit was a disaster. Yeah. As we said, implementation versus ambition. Our solutions are unworkable. So they are actually unworkable. And not enough, that's the radical activist mantra. And then the European crowd there, the green crowd, break up nation states and bolster the EU, ushering in global government. That is exactly what that coalition wants. is. Uh, these are all sort of uh, ethno uh, breakaway movements and, and a coalition of green. And so they're there to undermine the nation state. And they're all signed up for global government. Right. So that's, that's what that lobby is. Pay attention to that lobby. So let's just take a look at this on the China side. China's pledging to develop a methane action plan in order to achieve a significant effect on methane emissions control and reductions at some point during the 2020s. This is China's big announcement. This is the big truce. Uh, so this is, the, this is the whole of the truce because China's already said they're not abandoning coal, which was really one of Boris's key uh, deliverables for this conference. So that's a failure. This was the big win here, right, right here. Right. So we're gonna give that a big green rosette, big green rosette there. Well done, China. They get to walk away. No damage there to the Chinese economy. Good job. Here's the, here's the rub though. Uh, the pledge to phase out coal may unravel deal. Saudi Arabia, Russia, India call for a line in the draft text to be deleted. An unprecedented commitment to phase out coal and fossil fuel subsidies is set to be deleted from the final COP26 deal after opposition from Saudi Arabia, Russia, and India. This is serious. So this is a deal breaker. This is the same as COP21 in Copenhagen uh, when I was there covering that. The Danish text leak at the end mm. proved that the developed countries, the wealthy North, were going to make the third world pay mm. for climate. And the whole thing fell apart on the last day. This, to me, is more or less the equivalent here. Uh, and why, why are uh, fossil fuel subsidies important to Saudi Arabia? Well, for any country like Saudi Arabia, uh, any real oil producing country, Venezuela, Saudi Arabia, Russia, even the US, keeping cheap petrol or cheap fuel or subsidized fuel is very important 
for countries uh, in order to stimulate the economy. But in a country like Saudi Arabia, it's one of the things that uh, keeps people really happy, uh, maybe from rebelling. Uh, if you start gouging uh, co uh, countries, especially that are always uh, tenuous in terms of uh, their uh, ruling uh, arrangement between the ruling class and the people, uh, you have the potential for an, an uprising there. But they're not the only countries that have subsidies. Many countries do subsidies. So the, the AOCs of the world, the Greta Thunbergs of the world, see that as some sort of grave mortal sin uh, against the planet. But in fact, what it is, it's just common practice. Uh, food is also subsidized, Mike, mm. in a lot of countries. And it's no different. You can't look at it in terms of uh, food and fuel and staples and things like that. It's all the same. Certain things uh, governments will, will try to make more affordable. Uh, if, if, you, if you lift subsidies in some of these countries, the wealthy countries might be able to weather that storm for a while, but the, the poorer countries or countries in sort of uh, harsher climates like, like Saudi Arabia, you have the potential for instability, uprisings, regime change. So maybe the Western powers like that. Maybe they do. It might suit them. Mm -hmm. so, that's, uh, that, so this is a deal breaker uh, right here. And so this might actually push COP26 into the weekend uh, I think, you know, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, until they can hammer out some compromise. They'll come up with some, uh, you know, language that will placate both sides and everyone will do a thing for the cameras and say it, it was okay. Yeah. So, but, so here's the Saudi Arabian minister here. And so they're, they're, they're blaming them for sabotaging uh, COP26. And here's what he says. Saudi pours billions... Uh, in state support into its oil industry. And here's the uh, energy minister, uh, Prince Abdulabziz uh, bin Salman al-Saud, uh, who said, there should not be any bias towards or against any particular source of energy. We've said this on the show before as well. And that we should use all energy resources as long as we congregate around mitigating. Uh, and China agrees with that position. So that's really important. And so I, I think this is a common sense, pragmatic, statement here, but he's being, I mean, I'll never thought I'd agree with Saudi Arabia's <laughs> ministry on anything, but he's actually talking pretty common sense here, basic market economics, and um, to me, normal, normal speak, what, what we'd expect to hear from our leaders, right? So, no. But Boris is on a whole new green trip. So, but these, apparently this is who everybody is fawning over and listening to. This is the queen of COP26. This is Jennifer Morgan, she's the head of Greenpeace, and here's what she says here. Their statement falls short of the call by climate vulnerable country, countries demanding that nations come back to the table every year with, a gr with greater ambition until the 1.5 degree Celsius uh, temperature gap is closed. What does she mean by the 1.5 gap? What, is this some sort of knob that you can turn up and down? It is a knob that they want to turn up and down. So they're claiming that based on their models uh, that uh, we're heading towards three degrees C uh, compared to the, the Paris uh, numbers and, and they want to bring that down to 1.5 degrees C. Uh, well, that's, uh, that is a knob that they're going to have to turn, but only at the cost of people's lives. Well, we'll get into knobs later. I'll show you a few more in, in a minute. But you're right, they formalize this now, Mike, 1.5. They've, they've formalized this as the sort of the holy knob of, of the climate thing. So, so who is 
Jennifer Morgan, and uh, we just did a little bit of research, and we found out that who is Jen? Well, actually, yes, this is from 2019. Jennifer Morgan, uh, she is Greta Thunberg's chaperone, PR manager, and handler. Oh, and so she is the top queen at COP26. So she helped to uh, bring Greta Thunberg through the ranks there. And I'm sure her people were involved in the speech writing and all of Greta's theatrics. And there she is with uh, Herr Schwab there at the World Economic Forum Summit in Davos. So this is an unelected, not even a bureaucrat, somebody from a, a, a charity, a third sector, uh, high-ranking uh, globalist. Mm. And she is basically, they're going to her, the press, for comment, for, for approval on what the politicians are doing. It's just unbelievable. So where's the democracy in this? This is... This is the new democracy. Stakeholder. Stakeholder capitalism, stakeholder democracy. It's whatever you want to call it. Exactly right. And uh, if you want to get more extreme, check this guy out. He's Dutch. He's an MEP. He's from the Green Left, European Green Party. He's in there with that sort of that Green European Freedom Alliance Coalition. And Bas Eichhout is his name. And he, this is what he's saying. Taking the Paris Agreement seriously means immediately stopping public and private finance for fossil fuel activities. <laughs> so every cent spent on fossil fuel infrastructure hinders the transition towards a climate neutral economy. So this is absolutely insane. But these people are dictating the agenda. It's unbelievable, totally detached from the reality of economics. You talk about supply chain interruptions, these people want to shatter this supply chain. Yes, they want to stop uh, they want to stop bulk ca uh, carrying through uh, diesel engine uh, ships. Uh, they want to stop aircraft, they want to stop cars, they want to stop HGVs, they want to stop everything. I, and because they believe in their imaginary Well, they believe in their imaginary 15-minute city. Right? That we too. Will, yes, we will be uh, we will be no travel will be within our local communities and that's it. So it's all well and good to Mike for, for, to have these theoretical debates academically and on panels and stuff. Right. But when this is getting into policy, and and it's having actual ramifications economically and to people's lives and disruptions and and real problems, real problems, then this we need to take this seriously. People need to, we can stop laughing at COP meetings now and realize that this is extremely dangerous. Well, just one example is if if they've agreed. Uh, which Germany, by the way, hasn't. If they've agreed that uh, internal combustion engines are effectively going to be phased out by 2040, and that includes HGVs, where is the infrastructure to replace the HGV flight, uh, fleets? Never mind your own personal transport. HGVs are in the modern day required uh, to get food on the supermarket shelves. Where is the infrastructure for that? Uh, we've had one uh, attempt by a startup, and uh, what are they called? Uh, Nikolai. Uh, which has ended up in a massive fraud case uh, because they could not get their uh, electric truck working. There is nothing to replace internal combustion engines with at this point in time. So what are the prospects of developing something in, you know, 25 years? It's, it's not realistic. It could happen in 30 years or 40 years, but you, you can't hit the brakes right now right. without having something viable uh, to transition to. And this is exactly what's happened. But the radical left and the sort of the radical green and the socialist uh, green movements and all that, they don't care about any of that. They want to hit their targets and celebrate and do their victory lap now 
uh, and at these great summits where they're, they're virtue signaling. Now let's talk about some green extortion. And, you know, I have to hand it to India, Mike. They've played a blinder on this. This is Modi. And Modi is such a canny operator. Get, get a load of this. Rich countries should pay $1 trillion in climate finance for this decade. For He's talking about India here. Yeah. Not just to all the poor countries, just to India. So he says, well, we'll abide by all of your new diktats, but you got to pay us and, uh, in order to, to help with this transition. And here's the India Environmental Secretary, Gupta. India will only phase out coal if it gets that cash. Mm. Okay, so they've played a blinder. This is green extortion. And we're going to coin a new term this week on the UK column, which is the green leech, the great green leech. And India is potentially going to be the great green leech. And you know what? It's going to work. They can hold a gun to the head of the rest of the world because they realize how vulnerable this, this political consensus is, this scientific consensus. India knows how vulnerable they are. They need India because they're not going to get China running into their, their, their loving arms so easily. And so India is playing this really well. Look, when you hand a pile of cash to a country that has, has known corruption, and on the corruption index sits quite high and has done for years, mm. a lot of that money is not going to go to lowering the Earth's temperature, <laughs> even if you believe that you can do that. Guess what? It's going to get pilfered, and it's going to be done on a massive scale. It's going to enrich the bureaucratic. It's going to create the new Mandarin class. Mm. Uh, which is increasing internationally. So we're, we're building this technocracy, this green technocracy, that hasn't done anything, that likely won't do anything. They will produce nothing. We're going to hand over trillions of dollars to various countries from our own pockets to the, all these different pro pro programs that are not going to actually uh, perform at all. They will not lead to any tangible results. So that is the recipe for disaster, not just for this country, Europe, or America, but really for the entire sort of developed world. Right. So um, inc incredibly dangerous. And then here's the U.S. And what's bizarre is most people will send their leader. The U.S. has a whole gaggle, Mike, of people. There's Sleepy Joe. Obama has showed up as well. And uh, here we go. This Well, they say they want to ban plastics, but then they've invited Nancy Pelosi. And there's AOC uh, as well. AOC is there. Uh, and she made a new friend, Mike, here. Uh, this is Nippy Sturgeon and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, best of friends now. Uh, are they, despite the fact that uh, Nicola attempted to shove a can of iron brew down her throat? Well, she, uh, AOC voluntarily drank the iron brew. Here she is making a big deal about it on social media. So, I mean, this is what they're getting up to uh, on the taxpayer's dime here. And it's nice that she took off her mask to do her uh, video, even though she was surrounded by people when she did her little promo video for Iron Brew. Look at them, aren't they? Lovely. Aren't they lovely? Lovely couple. Both of them, yes. You can't tell who's who, though, these days with the masks. But uh, uh, Barack Obama, I don't know if we have, do we have that? Uh, we do have that, yes. This is interesting, Mike. Obama made a, a, a big speech, and uh, uh, he, he, well, I think he made a few mistakes, but let's listen to this, uh, Barack Obama at COP26. Since we're in the Emerald Isles here, let me quote the bard, William Shakespeare. What wound, he writes, did ever heal but by degrees?
Our planet has been wounded by our actions. Profound. There's a couple of mistakes in there. Did you spot them? Well, uh, I'm not certain that anybody's ever uh, considered the whole British Isles to be the Emerald Isles before, so that's a good one. And uh, I'm not sure that in being in Scotland that, uh, you know, Shakespeare is necessarily considered, you know, the bard. The bard, as because Scotland, it, was, Scotland. it might be Robert Burns or anything. So, so Scottish people should be a little bit offended by that. But um, just for the uh, American audience, the Emerald Isle, Normally Ireland, isn't it? Well, indeed it is. It is. So we just wanted to correct Barack Obama on those two points. But the press loved it. They thought he was brilliant. So he really does get a free uh, pass, doesn't he? Yes. And he, he'll, he continues to get a free pass. So um, anyway, uh, anyway, that's what's happening at COP. We'll, we'll, you'll know on Monday, won't you, uh, what the final results well, are. Well, maybe, if it's, if, it's still, if it's over by then. Of the rebellion. And we just wanted to point to this story, because obviously we talked about Eric Clapton on this show before. Oracle Films did that great interview with Eric Clapton when he was talking about uh, the, the songs that he wrote with Van Morrison and against the lockdown, his vaccine adverse reaction, and so forth. So here's what the Washington Post has done. They're, they're, they're hunting down all of these people, Mike. There's high-profile yeah. people who are not along with the narrative. They're, they're hunting Eric Clapton now. What happened to Eric Clapton, says the Washington Post. Democracy dies in the dark. And this is what they've done. Eric Clapton's anti-vaccine behavior has his longtime friends and fans uh, asking what the guitar great is thinking. So he declined the interview. Let's just be clear. He declined multiple attempts by the Post for this article. And so what did they do? When they couldn't get him, they went around to all of his friends and colleagues and they got statements. They cherry-picked the ones that they wanted, threw out the ones they didn't, and they wrote this massive hit piece on Eric Clapton. This is just a really uh, disgusting uh, uh, effort of uh, so-called journalism by The Post here. More than 20 friends and collaborators talked to The Post about the motivations of 76-year-old guitar icon, three-time Rock and Roll inductee Hall, uh, Hall of Fame, and who has emerged as a vocal critic of the stay-at-home orders and vaccine measures during the pandemic. So you can see what they've done here. We'll translate that for you. Clapton refused to talk to journalists for fear of a hit piece, so the Post chased up 20 friends and colleagues to comment on his disturbing behavior. Were they close friends? Were they colleagues that he's working with at present? or Ex-friends, yes. people he hadn't spoke to in years as well. So Robert Cray was one of them, the great blues guitarist, right. threw, threw Clapton under the bus. So he was uh, baited by the post here. And so what emerges is a portrait of an artist who largely stayed away from political matters, but always prioritized his career and musical ambitions in aloof and sometimes guileless ways. That's a pretty uh, derogatory yeah. statement, isn't it? Well, we're going to translate that for you. This is public mobbing by the corporate media on behalf of, and I'm going to say this, and I'm not saying this flippantly, I will prove it, on behalf of the pharmaceutical industry and the World Economic Forum. Right. Okay, how do we know this? Take a look at this. Who owns the Washington Post? Jeff Bezos. Amazon is a member of the World Economic Forum, okay? So, and Jeff Bezos, of course, was at COP. Well, yeah, he was. Yes. He was. And he's a, he's a frequent attendee to these sort of jet set uh, events. So that's his paper, basically hounding uh, Eric Clapton. They go after these influencers, Mike, because Eric Clapton is dangerous. He commands a massive fan base. Here's Jeff Bezos again, Amazon's one billion peace offering to India, 
World Economic Forum was, was crowing about this. There's him doing his Om Shanti uh, there on their website. And here's the, here's the payback, uh, the opinion, the World Economic Forum is a force for good. So you can see this goes both ways. The, uh, he can scratch their back with positive media coverage, they scratch his back by facilitating business deals. So it's so corrupt. And then the paper attacks people who go against the agenda, which is the Great Reset vaccination COVID agenda. And that's exactly what's happened. Here we go again, Washington Post to join programming at the 2021 World Economic Forum. So, I mean, they're so deeply involved in all of this, Mike. Yes, well, we'll have a little bit more on the World Economic Forum in a little bit later. But uh, now, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there. That would be very much appreciated. And also do share our material that you find on the various platforms. A quick thank you once again for everybody that's picked up a UK Column hoodie. Uh, and finally, just a, another massive thank you to everybody that has uh, put in a donation for David Noakes. That's up to 20,661 just before we uh, came on air. Uh, so, you know, as I said uh, on uh, Wednesday, th this is uh, the family's uh, donation page. It's not the UK column. So please don't send any money to us for this. You need to do that directly. But, uh, you know, just a huge thank you to everybody that has done. Yeah, well, hopefully he's going to get a resolution uh, in his legal battle as well. Yes, indeed. Now, uh, let's move on to this. This is from Canada and uh, St. John, uh, cardiologist and inspiring spirit dies suddenly is the headline from CBC News. Uh, this is uh, Dr. Uh, Sohrab, uh, well, Lachmedial, I believe is how you pronounce it. I could be wrong. Uh, but uh, he has sadly passed away, uh, I believe, uh, within a few days of having received uh, a COVID booster shot. Uh, but he had been tweeting out material such as this. Uh, we need to start calling them, that's anti-vaxxers, antibody guns, and Americans will start getting lined up for the vaccines. Uh, or this one, uh, I think all of us would treat that unvaccinated per patient with respect and, uh, uh, and to the best of our abilities, but the people that convinced them not to get vaxxed, I want to punch those people in the face. Now look, it is always a tragedy when someone passes away uh, for whatever reason. But I think what I'm going to say here is that it's time that this kind of viewpoint this kind of rhetoric stops you know we are not going to have a sensible conversation about the rights and wrongs of vaccination or whatever these uh, injections are um while, we, while we're sort of so entrenched in positions that we're putting out this kind of uh, and this goes for both sides of the argument you know we have on one hand uh mainstream media uh publishing articles saying you know anti-vaxxer died uh Ha ha was kind of the the attitude of the mainstream press. And using the pejorative term anti-vaxxer. Yes, and and this this has got to this has got to end. So and and here's another point here. Uh, Yahoo News is pushing this out uh, today or yesterday, I think it was revealed. Thousands of double jabbed over fifties have died from COVID in the last four weeks. Um, and what are they saying? More than two and a half thousand fully vaccinated over fifties have died from COVID nineteen in the past month in England. New data shows. In a report published by the UK Health Security Agency, analysts re revealed 2,663 fully vaccinated over 50s have died within 28 days of a po positive COVID test in the last four weeks. Some 511 unvaccinated people died in the last four weeks of COVID-19. So we'll pause there. The, the first point to make here is, well, of course, is the answer to that. Because, you know, if you've got a population which is 90% vaccinated, then of course you're going to get 
more people that are fully vaccinated dying than, than unvaccinated. But then it goes on because then it qualifies this somewhat. It says the figures reflect the fact that the vast majority of this age group has died at least, sorry, has had at least two COVID vaccines. Death rates among the unvaccinated are significantly higher. So now they're suddenly talking about death rates rather than absolute values. Um, so they're saying for people aged over 80, the unvaccinated have a death rate of 125.4 per 100,000 compared to the vaccinated, uh, which is 59, uh, 54.9 per 100,000 in the past four weeks. For 70 to 79, the gap is even wider, wider with the unvaccinated death rate at 103.8 per 100,000 compared to 16.2 for the vaccinated. Now I'm going to say that I'm going to question this article 100% here. First of all, they don't link. They do not link to this claimed UK Health Security Agency analysis. Now, where did the uh, whole issue of per one hundred thousand come from? Well, it came from this. Uh, this is the COVID nineteen vaccine surveillance report, week forty two. Now, I believe we're up to week forty five now. So this is three weeks old, uh, and they uh, published this table. We've shown it on the program before, and this table absolutely showed that per one hundred thousand. The death rates amongst the vaccinated and the unvaccinated, that amongst the vaccinated, it was much higher for most age groups than in the unvaccinated. Um, this the uh, article that we've just shown there seems to say that the in, in a matter of three weeks the situation has completely reversed, uh, and they're now claiming that the rates are higher amongst the unvaccinated, but they're not linking to the underlying data. So we've no way to see the underlying data, and the latest from uh, week 43 onwards of the COVID-19 vaccine surveillance report, no longer uh, publishes that information, okay? So this has been part of the problem from the beginning. Um, the government is publishing data which suits its narrative. And when they publish some data that doesn't quite suit its narrative, then they drop that data set and they produce something else. Uh, and so if, if you go back and, and in fact, unfortunately, uh, as with the MHRA reports, you can only go back a certain distance. I believe it's five weeks in the case of the surveillance reports. It's very hard to get the older ones uh, if you want to look at some of the older surveillance reports. Um, so, uh, but if you do, if you were able to do that, you would see how the uh, evolution of the data presentation has gone and how they've attempted to deal with criticism that has come from, uh, from you know, people in the alternative media community. Um, and so this is, aside from the, the, the unpleasant rhetoric that's going around about you know, anti-vaxxers or pro-vaxxers or whatever it happens to be, uh, we've also got to start being honest about the data. Yeah, and, and so you're talking about when, when people in the alternative media are critical against government policy, then government agencies will try to maybe change the way they're presenting data, right? Or, or if, if, in fact, there's some analysis of the, of the actual data that has been published, then in future data sets, that data will not be available anymore. So you can't actually track it. And on top of that, of course, it's practically impossible to compare data sets from the ONS and from the uh, from Public Health England as was and so on. So there's no possibility of actually getting. Let me see that, uh, that article. I mean, just what you said here, this is unbelievable. I mean, per 100,000, the difference between, you take a block of 100,000 people and you have 125 that supposedly uh, were unvaccinated and died, and then you have 54 that were vaccinated and supposedly died um, of COVID, I guess, right? Or is this all? Yeah, this is of COVID, yeah. Oh, this is just of COVID. Yes. 
that's it, a minuscule difference between those two groups of people. If you consider two football stadiums, okay, in terms of just general public health, but the the arguments that people are cherry picking in order to say prove that their side is more righteous and more correct right. is unbelievable. I mean, it's just it's. It, these aren't arguments that can stand up and with any scientific significance. No, well, that's absolutely that's absolutely right. So you know, it's the the whole issue has got to be the whole debate has got to be raised a level, and we've got to get some honesty out of government statistics. I mean, at this point in time, the government isn't even able to provide a, a, a figure for how many people in the UK are unvaccinated. There are two there are two figures currently circulating, and one is double the other. Right. So therefore, how is anybody supposed to make a rational uh, assessment of what the situation actually is? This and, needs to change. And meanwhile, nobody is pouring into the issue of looking at this, the data from Yellow Card. Right. And, and not just from Yellow Card, but also from the uh, there's other data uh, with regards to injuries and uh, adverse reaction to drugs. Nobody's pouring into that. The press aren't trying to basically extrapolate any of right. that. They're just ignoring it. They don't want to touch it. And certainly, I think in terms of the public interest, that's that to me is a serious public interest issue. That's a lot of people's lives at stake, potentially, considering how many people have been vaccinated. So don't you think that would be of interest of the state or the press if they were truly uh, if they were truly in the business of, uh, uh, of, of the public interest, right? Right. So, but that's not happening. And I think we need to put more pressure uh, on the mainstream media and on our uh, officials and agencies to start talking about those issues instead of just trying to brush them under the rug. Um, so on Wednesday's program, we had a little bit of video uh, from Sajid Javid as he announced the vaccine mandate for uh, uh, for health workers. I'm just going to show a small segment of that to remind everybody what he said. Just listen to this. The weight of the data shows our vaccinations have kept people safe and they have saved lives. And that this is especially true for vulnerable people in health and care settings. And I'm mindful, not only of our need to protect human life, but our imperative to protect the NHS and those services upon which we all rely. Going to protect the NHS. He's going to protect the NHS, but uh, but the vaccines have saved lives. He says definitively. Um, well, look. Of course, that was all about a vaccine mandate. Um, and uh, I'm just going to give another example of uh, data which um, is no longer available. In in this case, the technical briefing. So this is SARS-CoV-2 uh, variants of concern and uh, variants under investigation in England. Technical briefing. 20. Now, I'm going to ask you, Patrick, to suspend your disbelief for a second while, while I talk about this, uh, because what uh, what Sajid Javid announced was that uh, people working in health and care settings were required to be vaccinated because that is going to protect people in the health service, going to protect the NHS and so on. Mm. But the question is, mm. is that true? So we're looking at uh, technical briefing 20 from August 2021, because uh, since that week, uh, this particular data is no longer available. Um, and so what are we looking at here? We're looking at uh, average daily lowest CT values for vaccinated versus unvaccinated cases by variant uh, from 1st of September 2020 to the 25th of July 2021. Now remember, Javid is taking a position that you can only be safe in a hospital based on this data, uh, based on PCR tests. You can only be safe in a, in a hospital if you're vaccinated. So surely uh, when it comes to 
viral load. I'm using their narrative here now. Okay, so don't don't uh, don't get worried about this. According to their narrative, uh, people with who are unvaccinated must have a higher viral load than people who are vaccinated. But that's not the case according to this data. Let's look at what they say in NHS test and trace case data. The mean and median lowest CT values for all cases with Delta, where CT data were available since the 14th of June 2021, are similar, with a median of 17.8 for unvaccinated and 18 for those with two vaccine doses. So in other words, uh, the number of cycle counts in the PCR test to get to a certain threshold was identical between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated, right? It goes on to say, this means that whilst vaccination may reduce an individual's overall risk of being, becoming infected, once they are infected, there is limited difference in viral load and CT values between those who are vaccinated and unvaccinated. So why mandatory vaccination in healthcare settings? Why? Because the science doesn't support it. The science doesn't support it. Even their science. <laughs> but, but the key point is that this particular measurement has been removed from that report in, in August. Uh, just in time for a few months later, a mandatory vaccination announcement. Mm, could so, the two be linked by any chance? Well, uh, you know, correlation is not causation and all that, but you know, it's, it it's a good question it, to ask. It does seem like it is actually, yeah. Yes, and the question then is, what, what, is, what are they claiming is the reduced risk of Delta vaccination uh, if, if you're vaccinated? Because in that, uh, that little bit of blurb there, it said that you know, while you have less chance of catching it with the vaccine, what is the less chance? Well, Financial Times here is citing a doc, uh, a, a report which said that 30% or a third is the, the reduction between uh, in the home setting. Now, what that is in hospitals, I don't know, but it's not, that is not significant enough in my opinion. And how do you define infection? Is infection testing PCR positive? Of course it is, yes. Well, that's not necessarily a case. No. So again, it's the language that, right from the beginning, they've been using this language, case, infection, uh, uh, and so forth, and they've been sticking with it ever since. So even though it, people who have been paying attention to this and all the uh, good analysts and the intelligent doctors and the intelligent scientific papers have all moved forward and moved and left all that sort of archaic uh, um, assumptions and so forth from spring of 2020, they've left that in the past, but the press haven't. No. And the political uh, operatives have not. They're still clinging to the old, whatever the first thing the WHO published in, in, uh, in, in the fake news that was being put out uh, back in, in January and February 2020 and March 2020. They're still clinging to that. And they're using that to build their narratives still. But look, uh, why am I showing you that? Because at the end of the day, if someone is finding facing uh, redundancy or the loss of their job as a result of their vaccination status, uh, then of course that's going to end up in some kind of tribunal. Um, there may be some reliance in the course of a court case um, on official government statistics, and perhaps that would be a useful uh, government statistic to use in a court of law. If they were, or a tribunal, if they were uh, perhaps taking the government for uh, unfair dismissal, or, uh, or there's or a lot, so. there's a lot of that going on in the United States right now, uh, in terms of legal cases. They're mounting up. Some lawyers are going to be busy right through till 2024 right. Uh, with unfair dismissals because of the uh, vaccine mandate, the federal mandate by Joe Biden, the philosopher king, science science philosopher king in the United States. So a big important part of this whole thing is the whole FDA, 
uh, approval. And so supposedly F the FDA approved the Pfizer-BioNTech uh, vaccine. Now, uh, that's not actually uh, true. That's not 100% true. This, a lot of this is a media device right. that has been put out. And we'll, we'll give you a brief summary on parts of this, and maybe we'll do a more in-depth analysis next week uh, because this is quite deep. We'll just give you an introduction here. FDA approval, and then now they're saying, no, it's FDA full approval. So there's all these different uh, talking points that have put out, and they're saying, yes, ready for vaccination. Line your kids up. Uh, they've been approved. So they've really gone for it uh, in, in the United States here. You've probably seen this story a few weeks ago. Uh, you know, FDA approves vaccines for children 5 to 11 years old. And this is really, really important because this is one step closer to getting on the kind of what they call the, uh, the schedule for children. Uh, and so that, you know, to go to school, you need to have these vaccines in certain states. And so this is one step closer uh, to that. So, uh, but yet they're still going to run into some problems in the short term here. And this is what they said back then. Uh, the expert panel believes that the benefits of the shots outweigh the risks for five to 11-year-olds. Now, that right there is not supported by any, yes. by any medical data, by any scientific data. It's literally just a claim that's been made here by this so-called expert panel. And people have ridden on, the, on this expert panel as this sort of uh, justification to get behind it. Mm. This is an external panel. It's not any kind of a binding body or anything. But they, they bring them in. They're all industry insiders. They voted 17 in favor and one abstention, mm -hmm. okay? And then, boom, it goes through uh, for, for children. So no questions asked. So, but there's some problems with this, and we'll, we'll get into some of that. But the authorization uh, for 5 to 11-year-olds, this is what they're saying here. This is Reuters. It's an important regulatory step towards reaching that 28 million children for inoculation. They're using the word inoculation and saying that this is a condition to get kids back into in-person schooling. Okay, that right there is an absolute lie. This is not an inoculation. This does not do anything that vaccines traditionally claim they do, which is to provide some level of immunity mm -hmm. to some sort of a foreign uh, pathogen, be it a virus or uh, something like this, a, a bacterial infection. This does, this does not do that. So to, they're using the words like inoculation and so forth. So that, that is a, should be a red flag for everybody, along with the other misuse of language that we've, we've uh, pointed out in the past. It's so difficult to have any discussion or debate when these sort of, this is the way the conversation's being framed. And here's one of the FDA infamous panel members here, Eric Rubin, editor-in-chief of the New England Journal of Medicine. This is what he said. We're never going to learn about how safe this vaccine is unless we start giving it out. Wow. So that's just the way it goes, says Eric Rubin. Uh, that's how we found out about uh, rare complications with other vaccines like coronavirus vaccine. I'm not sure what he's talking about there because um, I don't think there was a coronavirus vaccine on general release before, was there? Well, there was and it was withdrawn very quickly. Very quickly, yes. yeah. So, because, I mean, because people were having adverse reactions, uh, you know, very similar to what's going on at the moment. They've tried with the swine flu vaccine, yes. the smallpox in, in 2003. I can get into that in more depth next week, perhaps. That's an interesting story. And they tried anthrax vaccines yeah. and all sorts of things. So this is Eric Rubin here. This is the guy that helped make this happen. Uh, and I do think that we should vote to approve it. Of course you do. Uh, he's talking about the jab here. Now, here is a bad actor. Okay, this is a bad actor. This is the former FDA commissioner. 
When I say former Mike, I'm talking about months ago. And he's now on the board of Pfizer. Scott Gottlieb, and he is given basically a, a prime time position on any media outlet still after he jumped from government to the board of Pfizer to basically uh, protect the FDA, which he does openly, okay, and also then to sort of big up whatever Pfizer's uh, products or claims is and talking about their rolling authorization they have now where they can just, they don't have to submit full reporting uh, because the, the, the regulators sort of generally approve all of Pfizer's products now and they just have to go through the light process. How, how was that even nearly considered acceptable that somebody that was on the regulator moved directly into a, an executive position in one of the companies that was being regulated by the regulator? As acceptable as it is it going the other direction, Mike, from the company to the regulator. And there's a few of those as well. And the CDC is chock full of these sort of actors. Now back to Scott Gottlieb here. So he's out and this is what he does. He pushes his book. This is his book, which you can find in, in uh, the bestseller, apparently, in all the major bookstores. Uncontrolled spread by Scott Gottlieb here, who's now a shill for Pfizer. Why COVID-19 crushed us and how we can defeat the next pandemic. I mean, this guy is one of the driving forces in America and maybe in the world behind this kind of uh, pseudo pandemic, the global pseudo-pandemic. This is one of the main actors. And he was allowed to jump from the FDA gatekeeping position, get the vaccine out there uh, without any real regulation at all. And then he jumps onto the board of Pfizer. Uh, uh, which, of course, CNBC doesn't mention there. He's, he's labeled as former FDA commissioner. They said that, and they said verbally he is on Pfizer, but they don't put it on the Chiron. Right. Uh, not, not, not on that part of the segment. Maybe they did on, on the others here. So if you want to get into the real uh, nitty-gritty of how this is just so corrupt, um, this is a great article here. This is a report by Joseph McCullough, who's having to wipe his articles off his website now uh, because he's been put on this uh, horrible list. But this explains it chapter uh, and verse. And if you go down to the uh, bottom of this article, all the way down the bottom, you'll see a video interview here. And this is uh, between Dr. Joseph Mercola and an uh, investigative journalist, Dr. Merrill Nass. She's not just a journalist, she's an MD. Uh, so she's a medical investigative journalist. And she really goes through, and she's done um, incredible research. She's working with Children's Health Defense. They're, they're pe petitioning uh, people like the FDA. They're, they're trying to inform them and inform their members about what's really happening here. And so what's happened is, is, is quite a shocking state of affairs. Let's just run through some of the uh, pseudo-regulation uh, on this vaccine. This is full approval. Mm, I, don't, I don't know exactly what that means, but here's what you need to know. The FDA approval was to enable the legally dubious vaccine mandate. Full stop. That's the only reason they rushed through this, this, this approval mm. was to basically make that vaccine mandate temporarily work which Joe Biden announced in September, okay, which still hasn't actually been formally, uh, it's not required yet, the deadline, I think it's in the, in the new year, basically. That's why that was done. So because a mandate can only uh, be decreed if there is a licensed product. Do you see how this game is being played, Mike? Yes. It's pretty, pretty transparent now. You are witnessing one of the biggest scams between uh, transnational corporate cartels and the federal government, and this could be any government, I think they're probably doing the same thing uh, to some degree here in the UK as well, the same sort of game that's being played. An emergency use authorization 
in, uh, in EUA, it can only be issued if there is no other option, i.e. no treatments. Mm. What have they been doing for the last two years? They've been uh, demonizing ivermectin, demonizing hydroxychloroquine, allowing a fake paper to be submitted to the Lancet with a fake study, just to basically, uh, and the press all reported on it, and they retracted it quietly later, but that, that started the demonization of a potentially viable treatment. And so if you have a viable treatment, then there's no need for a vaccine, mm. or you don't need a, an emergency use authorization. You can still develop a vaccine if you want. There's nothing stopping those companies in developing them, but they have to go through the normal diligence and regulatory process, which could take up to number of years, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years. They basically rushed all of that through in lightning speed under this guise that there is no other options, no treatments for COVID. This is why if you go into a hospital and uh, they, they test you and you test positive for COVID, I can speak from personal experience because I will say this happened to me, mm. okay? I was labeled a case. And guess what? When they kick you out the door and say, go home, do they give you any treatment at all? And I'm going to say, no, they give you nothing. They didn't even tell me to get some paracetamol, okay, or aspirin, zero. As if there's no, there's a treatment for everything in this world, Mike, mm. everything. And supposedly there's no treatment for COVID and you've got the best brains in the world working on it. No, the only option is a vaccine, uh, according to government, according to the public health mavens, and of course, according to, of course, the pharmaceutical companies and the media that uh, that takes their money right. uh, for advertising. So there we are on that, on that front here. So Pfizer also changed the formula to make it more stable for storage. So, so it didn't have to be in a deep uh, minus 70 or whatever the long storage. They changed the formula to make it more stable, more practical for warmer storage. Okay, so you can have it normally in a fridge. But the new formula never went through any clinical trials. That's illegal. That's illegal by normal standards in the U.S. That's just one example of what was bypassed. Okay, planning clinical trials. They are planning. This, this I believe, is going to happen on babies as young as six months. So that effectively is experimenting on babies. There's, you, can, you can dress it up all you want, but if they go ahead with that, if this happens, these companies are start doing that. There is no reason to be testing these uh, COVID vaccines on babies who are not at any uh, risk of COVID. So that's effectively experimentation on babies. This is what these forces in corporate, uh, uh, the corporate pharmaceutical forces and the political forces are pushing for. The regulatory agencies really need to be either disbanded or they need to start you know, having a tribunal or something because this is so out of control right now. So pre previously, this is historical fact. In the past, foster children, wards of the state have been used in certain clinical trials for certain uh, uh, pharmaceutical products. What will it be this time? Mm. Is this where they're going to get their six-month-old babies? Are they going to get them from uh, uh, foster or wards of the state? I mean, so we would like to have some answers on these sort of things because it's kind of important. But this is where we're at right now. Yes. So let's come back to the UK then, just as a quick reminder, because uh, when we were talking about the vaccination of children, uh, the JCVI were not prepared to, to suggest that uh, COVID-19 vaccination, COVID vaccination should be universal for uh, children, 12 to 15 year, year olds at least. So uh, this is Professor uh, Wai Shen Lim, who said uh, 
uh, taking a precautionary approach that the margin, the margin of benefit is considered too small to support universal COVID-19 vaccination for this age group at this time. But of course, uh, the JCVI gave the government a, a, a get out of jail free card in, in a sense, because when they issued their statement, they said it's not within the JCVI's remit to consider the wider societal impacts of vaccination, including educational benefits. The government may wish to seek further views on the wider societal and educational impacts from the chief medical office of, officers of the UK's four nations, which of course is exactly what they did. It is. So what did they do here, Mike? They're starting to pull a different card, not a health card. In other words, it's not about protecting kids from COVID. It's about protecting their well-being uh, in case they miss another year of school, not because of COVID, but because of government policies or because of the rabid teachers unions. So let's just get clarification on this. Go to Science Media Center here. This is an excellent blog, by the way. Uh, I encourage people to check out. So the primary reason for the recommendation from the chief medical officers uh, is to minimize disruption to education. This is by far the biggest threat to the physical and mental well-being of children at present and should be prioritized. So clearly this was pulling a, a different card that had nothing, nothing to do with their physical health mm. or at being at threat from COVID. That's how they got this through. That's how they ran that through. I mean, that's unbelievable how that was able to happen. And this whole business of children not being allowed to go into school, of course, driven largely by the teachers unions and the narrative that children were effectively asymptomatic SARS-CoV-2 factories uh, mm -hmm. going into school every day, infecting the teachers and teachers are going to die in their thousands. Yeah. Well, it never happened. Yeah, putting the vulnerable at risk, basically portraying the teachers and administrators as more vulnerable yes. and, and the kids as being potential uh, vectors, right? Right. So terrible, absolutely terrible. But guess what? This exact same language has been used in the United States here. You just go to the CDC's own report here. This is mRNA COVID-19 vaccine associated myocarditis uh, here. And we look at this, indirect impacts of COVID-19 pandemic on children. Look at this, worsening of medical and emotional health, widening existing education gaps, uh, decreased physical activity, decreasing healthcare yields. They're talking about school shutdowns here, loss of caregivers, increased adverse childhood experiences, ACEs. I didn't know that was a thing but there it is, decreased uh, routine immunization. They're talking about access to healthcare. None of that has to do with COVID and it has everything to do with- Government policy. With policy, with teachers unions uh, pressures on schools and so forth. So again, it's the same thing. We're seeing the mirror of the UK and the US and we probably would see it in other countries if we looked close enough, right? So this is an interesting chart and a big shout out over to the, uh, the High Wire show uh, on Rumble. Uh, they also showed this too, this is how we got turned on to this chart. Vaccine adverse reactions uh, from the VAERS system. And you see the, the, the bars, Mike, that are lit up in orange. Um, those would be above the sort of the uh, more normal signals uh, in terms of uh, adverse reactions here uh, in, in these age groups. And as you can see, the younger the age group, it's, it's a lot higher. Mm. So clearly there is a visible risk according to even the VAERS data, which is traditionally massively underreported anyway, you still see this massive increase here. So it's, a, it's actually a really good thing that it's possible to produce a, t a, a table like that in the United States, because of course it isn't possible to produce a table like that in the United Kingdom because this data isn't available. And that's a problem. Yes. And that's they just tell us that uh, well, it's normal background noise that you're saying in the in the yellow card scheme. There's no actual data from the MHRA to show 
to what degree it's background noise and to what degree it's actually an event. But they could if they wanted to. Oh, they to. could. They yes. could if they wanted to. Well, they spent to. one and a half million pounds on an AI system to do just that. But of course, the public doesn't get access to it. Hmm. Uh, and so we don't know. Yeah. So, I mean, and we have obviously in the high wire has to dig to find this sort of stuff because sure. the press is not going to cover on it. So let's get down to where the nub of it all here. U.S. appeals court early this week uh, blocked Biden's federal COVID-19 vaccine mandate. There's Joe here. He is horrified by this uh, latest move. So what does this mean? This means that an appeals court has basically said it's illegal. The federal mandate's illegal. So let's take a look at this federal mandate. Biden announced it in September, but the order only comes into effect on January 22nd, uh, January 4th, 2022. So where's the quote emergency here? We've got these like three, four, five month, six month windows. Supposedly everyone's dropping dead from COVID. That's why we need to do all this stuff, right? Right, and, and it's the same in the UK. The vaccine mandate implemented a few days ago but it doesn't take effect until the 1st of April. Well, that's a whole winter season uh, where, where people aren't required to give up their jobs. So, so where's the emergency? There is, there is no emergency. And if you, want to, uh, if you want a real challenge there, uh, death by boredom, uh, the, the executive order is 480 pages uh, long. So I encourage you to go read that if you really want to get depressed. So, and Mike, the Supreme Court is likely to side with the lower court on this. That's going to happen. This, if this go, we said this before on the show. It will go to the Supreme Court. Yeah. It will, and I don't think uh, the Supreme Court's going to side with Joe Biden on this, unfortunately. And so that means, unfortunately, well, that, that was dripping <laughs> in sarcasm there. Unfortunately for Joe, yeah. what does this also mean? It means that you will have some legal recognition from the Supreme Court on natural immunity, on effective treatments. They will all be legally recognized. And let me tell you, that's the beginning of the end of this scam, uh, if, if it's allowed to get that far. The mm. question is, how soon will it get to the Supreme Court? And how much damage will be done before it does? Right. That's the big question. So, and then the idea of, we talked about the redefining of languages, mm. redefining the term vaccine, okay? What, what they're pushing now for COVID vaccines, everyone who is clued up on this will know that these aren't traditional vaccines. Okay, they don't do what traditional vaccines claim to do, which is to inoculate, uh, to provide immunity. What they are is effectively treatments or therapies. They supposedly reduce symptoms, like a drug. It's effectively a drug. This is the editor of the British Medical Journal. He made the statement recently, uh, and he explains that this actually happened. Webster's Dictionary changed the definition of vaccines. Let's play this. I am one of the academics that argues that these mRNA products, which everybody calls vaccines, are qualitatively different than standard vaccines. And so I found it fascinating to learn that Merriam-Webster changed its definition of vaccine early this year. mRNA products did not meet the definition of vaccine that has been in place for 15 years at Merriam-Webster, but the definition was expanded such that mRNA products are now vaccines. I highlight this to ask a question. How would you feel about mandating COVID vaccines if we didn't call them vaccines? What if these injections were called drugs instead? So here's the scenario. We have this drug, and we have evidence that it doesn't prevent infection, nor does it stop viral transmission. But the drug is understood to reduce your risk of becoming very sick and dying of COVID. Would you take a dose of this drug every six months or so for possibly the rest of your life? 
if that's what it took for the drug to stay effective? Would you not just take this drug yourself, but support regulations mandating that everybody else around you take this drug? Or would you say, hold on a sec. Maybe you'd say that if that's all the drug does, why not use a normal medicine instead, the kind we take when we're sick and want to get better? And why would you mandate it? The point is, just because we call it a vaccine doesn't mean we should assume these new products are just like all other childhood vaccines which get mandated. Each product is a different product, and if people are okay with mandating something simply because it's a vaccine and we mandate other vaccines, so why shouldn't we mandate this? I think it's time to inject some critical thinking into that conversation, and that is what I hope we're doing today. Thank you. Well, that's pretty clear. Yeah, and he's absolutely correct. He showed you why. And uh, thank you to uh, one of our uh, viewers, uh, he's deputy editor mm. uh, at the British uh, Medical Journal, the BMJ, Peter Dashi. Okay, well, you mentioned the World Economic Forum uh, earlier on. So I just want to uh, bring this from Swiss Policy Research, published a couple of days ago. Uh, the World Economic Forum and the pandem pandemic, it's quite a good overview of where we're at at the moment. Uh, I'm only just going to cover uh, a little bit of it. I absolutely recommend people read the whole thing. But look, let's uh, uh, look at uh, uh, how they, the influence that they are highlighting that the World Economic Forum has had on this whole uh, pandemic and the policy around it. So first they say the World Economic Forum was together with the Gates Foundation as sponsor of the prescient Event 201 coronavirus pandemic simulation exercise held in New York City. Uh, on the 18th of October 2019, the same day as the opening of the Wuhan Military World Games, seen by some as ground zero of the global pandemic. China itself has argued that US military athletes may have brought the virus to Wuhan. Uh, then second, the World Economic Forum has been a leading proponent of digital biometric identity systems, arguing that they will make societies and industries more efficient, more productive and more secure. In July 2019, the World Economic Forum started a project to shape the future of travel with biometric-enabled digital traveler identity management. That's in 2019. Uh, in addition, the World Economic Forum collaborates with ID2020 Alliance, which was funded by the Gates and Rockefeller Foundations and runs a program to provide digital ID with vaccines. In particular, ID2020 sees the vaccination of children as an entry point for digital identity. Uh, third, World Economic Forum founder Klaus Schwab is the author of the book COVID-19, The Great Reset, uh, published in July 2020, which argues that the coronavirus pandemic can and should be used for an, quotes, economic, societal, geopolitical, environmental and technological reset, including, in particular, advancing global governance, accelerating digital transformation and tackling climate change. Now, we're going to have a look at what the British government has, has just been talking about, or at least Sajid Javid in a second. But actually, when you read that paragraph, we've covered quite a bit of that in today's programme. Uh, so they go on to say, finally, the World Economic Forum has been running since 1993, a programme called Global Leaders for Tomorrow, rebranded in 2004 as Young Global Leaders. This programme aims at identifying, selecting and promoting future global leaders in both business and politics. Indeed, quite a few young global leaders have later managed to become presidents, prime ministers, or chief executives. Uh, and they say, in conclusion, the Davos World Economic Forum has indeed been involved in the strategic management of the coronavirus pandemic, with a major emphasis on using the pandemic as a catalyst for digital transformation and the global introduction of identity, of digital identity systems. Well, okay, a lot of what's been said there actually has, as I said, 
parallels with what we've already covered on the news program today. But uh, Sajid Javid was speaking uh, on Wednesday to the uh, uh, NHS Confederation, Confederation ICS Leaders Conference. Uh, and I just want to uh, run through a couple of things that he said. Uh, this is the sixth department I've led, he said, that being the Department of Health. But we do have new ideas for what is unquestionably a new era. So he's talking about a new era of healthcare. Uh, we're heading into a new era. Uh, he uh, goes on to say, we must learn from the pandemic what went wrong, of course, but equally important is what went right. For a start, we've never been more integrated. Integration is, we have been banging this drum to warn people that integration is one of the key aspects of this government in the UK, and we're seeing it right across the world as well. Integration of everything. Centralization, Se command and control. Absolutely. Uh, and he goes on to say, for our NHS leaders, the pandemic has been like sending elite Air Force pilots into space. Right. <laughs> right. I just put that one in because it was just such a ridiculous right. statement. But anyway, he, he went on. It's proof, if proof were needed, still needed, that integration must continue to be our watchword and integrated care systems are the right way forward. Uh, and soon I'll be bringing forward a white paper on integration. Uh, and he said, uh, it will see us embrace new ways of, ways of sharing records and delivering digital services together. This is what it's all about. It's building this uh, digital surveillance state. Uh, and health is right at the center of how we are going to be surveilled in the future. Together, I know this new era will be one of the most consequential in the NHS's proud history. This, this is a, a transformation program, changing the NHS into something that most people won't recognize but they're not telling us what it is in overt terms. They're not telling us what it is they're transforming it into. Uh, it is becoming a biosurveillance state. Uh, and, and, and my point here is, Patrick, that this, for all the people in full fact in the mainstream press that say that, uh, that government policy has nothing to do with the World Economic Forum and the Great Reset, the evidence is just there right in your face with every word that comes out of these people's mouths that they are following that agenda to the letter. Go, go back to that uh, Javid quote, if, if, if you can. Um, Mike, translate that into uh, uh, traditional Tory speak. Uh, is the next phase of the NHS will be a corporate, Yes, <laughs> will be a privatized corporate phase. And, it, and so who are the members of the World Economic Forum? These are all the top corporations in the world. Those are the members. They pay for the World Economic Forum, okay? So they're, they're going to, the WEF is going to do what's in the best interests of those companies, right? Yes. So this is exactly what we're seeing. This is the revolution. It's a transnational corporativist revolution, or to use Mussolini's uh, uh, word, fascism, international corporativist fascist revolution. This is what Sanjay Javid, he's an ex-Goldman Sachs guy, right? Yeah, yes. Yeah. Uh, well, so what do the Goldman Sachs crowd want? Do they want uh, everyone to be... Uh, happy and healthy, or do they want to be turning their uh, portfolios nicely? I think it's the latter. Yes, indeed. Uh, very briefly then, a um, uh, number of mainstream media uh, covering this. Good morning, Britain. Uh, if you remember, we showed a little bit of video of Richard Medley uh, tearing up the uh, leaflet that was being pushed through people's uh, letterboxes. Dr. Hillary jo Jones had been criticizing it heavily on Good Morning Britain. Well, uh, over 1,500 Ofcom complaints uh, and of course, the mainstream press presenting this as 1,500 idiots uh, putting in complaints about a t totally valid, uh, uh, you know, uh, criticism of of the leaflet and uh, and so on. Um, I would say 1,500 is it's a disappointingly small. I think if we're going to 
you know, if people are going to resist what's going on at the moment, they have to resist at every opportunity. This was a great opportunity. Uh, that should be 150,000 uh, complaints, I think, at, at the very least. Richard Madeley, he just flushed all of his street cred down the toilet. All, all, all that capital he built up uh, on talk radio and being a kind of, you know, um, uh, a voice against lockdown and all that, he just basically, he just basically torched it. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, well, anyway. Yes. Might be able to redeem himself. Later. Well, indeed. Now, look, uh, just quickly, a little bit more on defence here. And, uh, well, a, a week or so ago, uh, this meeting took place. This is the, uh, uh, this was on the uh, 25th and 26th of October. It's the EU Chiefs of Defence meeting in Brussels. Uh, and it's the uh, uh, military committee of the EU. Now, what are they talking about? Uh, they're talking about the strategic compass. This is one of these typical EU uh, buzzwords, which isn't really fully formed yet, but we'll see in a second what it means. Um, and it was that they were also talking about uh, integration, in this case, military integration, military union. Um, so here is General Claudio, Graz Claudio Graziani, who's the chair of the European Union Military Committee. The European Union has a unique chance to increase its credibility as a security provider, because we're again, we're using all this corporate language, because this is the direction that governments are heading into these corporate entities. Uh, so they're going to provide security. It used to be peacekeeping, right? Right, but they're now going to be effectively doormen on various countries and so on. So G4S, but bigger and sort of more, exactly. more legit. Uh, and we'll show you what that means in a second. The military should make every possible uh, every effort possible to implement a robust command and control structure with the aim to maintain operational superiority. Now, this is something that we have been warning about for many, many years, that the EU's uh, intention here is to create a military at EU level. So forget about German military and French military and Italian military. This is going to be EU military with EU command and control and not just military, but civilian as well. Uh, later will be too late, he said. So let's have a look at the, uh, very briefly, at the strategic compass. Now, this is draft one. They're still working on draft two. But if we look at, uh, at what it is, it basically represents everything that we have been talking about for the last four or five years. Um, so scenarios for military and civilian missions. So we're merging, uh, integrating military and civilian institutions. Uh, so uh, uh, let's have a look at uh, this for resilience, uh, protecting critical infrastructure, supply chain and so on, global commons. They are stealing uh, the global commons. Now we are going to uh, talk a lot more about this uh, in the coming weeks and months. Um, this is an extremely important uh, aspect because the global commons are things like water, air, uh, stuff that everybody assumes is a, a basic human right. Now, we've all, we already know that Nestle has been, certainly doesn't believe in water as a basic human right, but this is going to everything. Uh, and then uh, what are we looking at? The various physical infrastructure of the European Defence Union, uh, and uh, then the various partnerships, EU, UN, EU, NATO, EU, United States, Africa. So we're talking about the Sahel again. Uh, so partnerships everywhere. But look, NATO doesn't need to worry, Patrick, because according to Florence uh, Parley, the French uh, Armed Forces Minister, when I hear some defensive statements on European defence and when I observe certain threats, including within NATO, that is, I say, don't be afraid. Uh, European defence isn't being built in opposition to NATO. Quite the contrary, a stronger Europe will contribute to a strengthened and more resilient alliance. And if anybody's in any doubt that there's full support from the United States on this, well, aside from the fact that the US has already uh, made its first tentative steps into PESCO, which is one of the uh, EU Defence Union uh, uh, pillars. Um, 
This is Lloyd Austin, the US Defense Secretary, saying, I'll, I thought it was quite interesting language, I'll allow the EU to prescribe or outline the capabilities they think they need. But nonetheless, there, there is support from the US side. I'm just happy that you found a photo of Lloyd Austin not wearing a mask. He's uh, the woke. Well, I'm not saying it was from this year. He was the woke, he's the woke Secretary of Defense from, uh, from Biden's administration. I mean, it, it's, it's really going downhill uh, on, the, on the Pentagon side. So. Yes. Uh, if he's uh, if he's saying that, I think he's just basically saying, "Go ahead, and let us know how you do." That's the Biden administration's strategy on on pretty much everything. Yes. Now, one of the other themes, Patrick, of this program has been the similarity in narratives between the United States and the United Kingdom. And uh, if anybody uh, hasn't read Ian Davis's article on the UK Column website about the the domestic terror narrative that's being built, particularly. Uh, in the mainstream press and, and accusing anti-lockdown people of heading towards the right-wing extremes mm. and effectively becoming domestic terrorists. This seems to be a similar situation going on in the United States. Well, they're, they're developing, they're developing new language. And uh, so this is Christmas is coming, and but so is domestic terror, uh, according to the DNI, uh, the various agencies, the Department of Homeland Security. And uh, here, this is the iconic image here, Buffalo Man, on January 6th, and they're just politely asking the police for directions to the loo, I guess. I'm not sure what they're... Anyway, this is the, these are the insurrectionists that uh, held America uh, hostage, uh, supposedly. So here's the headline, Mike. U.S. issues a terror advisory amid heightened threat across the country. Is there really a heightened threat? Or is this just uh, something they say they think a, a computer algorithm came up with? Through the remainder of 2021 and into 2022, Domestic Violent Extremists, DVEs, D this is the new acronym, DVE, get used to it, uh, in, including uh, racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists, we'll get into that in a minute, and anti-government, anti-authority violent extremists uh, will continue to pose significant threat to our homeland. This is real... 1930s Germany kind of language, isn't it? To the homeland, yeah. So the, the the threat to the homeland isn't from the outside now, it's from the inside. And is there really a threat? Well, we took a look at their document here. We wanted to find out what does this mean, this, this DVE. Let's take a look at this. Domestic violent extremism poses heightened threat. This is just in the spring of 2021 here. And so we're looking through this document. This is a very interesting read, actually. Uh, and so it outlines all of the various different categories. And so there's not just the DVEs, Mike, there's others uh, as well. Let's just look at the new categories here for domestic extremists. And uh, so you got the DVE, that's domestic violent extremists. But you also need to know about your RMVE, which is the racially and ethnically motivated violent extremists, okay? Uh, and then you've got the MVE, which is kind of old school militia violent extremists, they've been relegated down to the bottom of the list yeah. uh, for some reason. So, But uh, these could very easily be rebranded, Mike, as categories of FBI informants and dupes, because if you look at all the terror busts over the last, say, 30 years, the majority of these have involved some FBI informant or some dupe or some asset mm. that was being handled or something like this. So we'll get into more detail here So on these categories. The language here is we're joking about it in tongue-in-cheek, but this is actually quite serious. Look at this. Uh, DVEs, according to the new government, anti-government, anti-authority category here, uh, they have ideological agendas derived from anti-government or anti-authority -author sentiment. Okay, just sentiment. 
including opposition to perceived economic, social, or racial hierarchies, or perceived government overreach, negligence, or illegitimacy. Does that not cover every type of dissent? Yes. Across the spectrum. So let's translate that for you. Uh, potentially, potentially anyone unhappy with uh, with the government there. So uh, we'll move on here. So let's look at some of this. This is an interesting one. Racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists here. So an agenda derived from bias, often related to race, ethnicity, held by the actor against others, including given population group. So you know that what they're talking about here is probably white nationalist, white right-wing extremists. So they say, yes, yeah, anybody in this category, here's the Charlottesville Tiki Torch Parade, okay, which actually uh, did feature a few FBI informants we found out later. So again, we're not just uh, saying that to be uh, rebellious here, but it doesn't include uh, Black Lives Matter. Right. So, some would say that you know burning down cities, torching buildings, uh, beating up people, and having just general riots and chaos—that could be, you know, violent extremism, according to most definitions, right? And it was certainly uh, race-related. It was definitely. It's, there's definitely a racial component to it, but that's not really focused on uh, on this new directive. It's right. really so. This, they're painting a certain type of a crisis here. So, and again, just to round it out, abortion-related violent extremists, uh, animal rights, environmental extremists, they got a mention in there, this year's Extinction Rebellion, PETA crowd, uh, and then all other domestic terrorism threats, which pretty much anybody with a personal grievance, potential bias, beliefs, anything related to religion, gender, or sexual orientation. So this is basically the criminalization of, of dissent, full stop. I mean, so the language is clear. What they didn't mention, what I didn't see in any of this, Mike, is this group here. Antifa, mm. for some strange reason here. This is a photo montage, by the way. This is not a uh, actual photo, but the news, so the news story is real. If you go to 21st Century Wire, check this out. Pharma's new shock troops. Antifa is now attacking anti-vaccine mandate protests. This happened in Boston. Antifa was mobilized to basically attack the pro-freedom rally. So the type, same type of pro-freedom rallies you'd see in London. Antifa was mobilized to basically attack them in Boston last week. So surprise, surprise. So Antifa is not mentioned in any of this government literature. It's almost like they don't exist. It's like a ghost army. And they're just, they're, they're literally there to attack the anti-vaxxers mm. at these public events. I mean, you couldn't make this up. So there's something going on here. I don't know what it is, Mike. But... Well, well, what it is, it, it looks to me like what it is, is, is a, an absolute mirror of the rhetoric that's being developed in this country through the mainstream press uh, primarily, but the government pushing it as well. Um, and that's anybody who is critical of government policy, and certainly most government policy criticism has been around COVID-19 in the last 18 months. Uh, anybody critical of that policy is a far-right extremist or becoming a far-right uh, extremist because uh, any anti-lockdown discussion is a gateway to extremism. Gateway, yeah, use the term gateway, and that yes. opens up to potentially anything. Yes. So, but some activist groups and some opposition groups are accepted uh, by the state, by the security state. They might infiltrate them. They might use them a little bit, like mm -hmm. we saw uh, recently uh, with the highway 
uh, protest as well. They yes. were allowed to extinction. Was it XR Extinction Rebellion? No, no that was the was uh, another the group. Insulate, insulate Britain. Insulate oh, Britain. Yes. They were allowed to. They're even police are facilitating yes. the protest, but others not. No, the others are not. So that makes people suspicious of controlled opposition. Yes. And so when we're talking about informants and dupes and other useful idiots, as they as they like to call them. Um, this isn't uh, just theorizing. This is actually what history has shown. Mm. So, and again, this uh, uh, Joe Boyd's book uh, yes. uh, details quite a lot of this as yes, well. Yes, Joe Boyd, uh, uh, the towards the kill the bill. Uh, sorry, the road to kill the bill. Road to the kill one. the bill. The yes. book. Yeah. So he gets into some of the the actual stories of, of some of these actual. Yes, uh, that's right. How and, this works. and if you haven't read that yet, do get it. It's available on Amazon, uh, and it's uh, it's a short read, but it it absolutely makes it clear how these. Uh, these types of protests are are, uh, are organized and run. Yeah, so look closer, look, read between the headlines, ladies and gentlemen. That's what we're here to help you do. Okay, well, we have to leave it there for today. Thank you very much for joining us today, Patrick. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we will be back at the same time, 1 p.m. on Monday, uh, and we hope you have a great weekend in the meantime, and we'll see you then. Bye-bye. <laughs>